On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we're going to continue reviewing a tract by a Baptist preacher. James Melton wrote a tract called The Bible Versus the Church of Christ, in which he suggested that that the things we believe and teach are in contradiction to the Bible, obviously, by the title. Last week, we talked about an, uh, about five or six of the points that he made. We long misrepresented us and, and, and misused the scriptures while doing so. Uh, the biggest section of his tract has to do with the uh, baptism and salvation. He believes we're wrong on that. We think he's wrong. We're going to review his tract. And in fact, he thinks... The Apostle Peter was wrong. At one point, he's going to even suggest that. We'll look at that as we go. All right. Uh, uh, We might mention that we tried to contact Mr. James Melton uh, to join us live for a one, or you know, face-to-face or one-on-one discussion of our differences, but we got no response. We're going to get into all of that. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study starts right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and welcome into the virtual bible study for thursday march 15th 2018 my name is jacob Gwynn. my father greg Gwynn is here hello dad jacob great to be with you kyle's back tonight behind the board kyle welcome to the program it's good to be thank you looking having. forward to hearing from you kyle looking forward to hearing from you on the phone on email or in the chat room tonight uh, send in your comments as we talk about uh, this uh, article written by the Baptist preacher. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I just want to put out an appeal to anybody who's listening who disagrees with the positions that we take tonight or any night. We are open to discuss our differences. We really think that's important and valuable. If you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself, ask your preacher to join us on the Verse Bible Say We have a wide open door policy We'd be glad to engage uh, in such a discussion. Uh, unfortunately, we've had trouble getting people to accept such invitations. If you're a little bit hesitant, look back in our archives where we've talked with folks that we've disagreed with in the past. And notice the tone. We're not here to to win an argument, to be ugly, to put anyone down. We're here to just have a, an open, honest, uh, God-honoring Bible study. Yeah, exactly right. All right. So, so anyway, well, let's just dive into this. Now, remember, if you didn't get to hear last week's program, you can go back in the archives and you can listen to last week's program in which we dealt with, I think, five or six different points of difference that Mr. Melton dealt with. Again, we think he misrepresented us, assigned to us beliefs that we don't believe, yep. and then misused scriptures to knock down the straw men that he had constructed. Uh, and we think he's done some of that tonight. Is the the biggest and the last and biggest part of his tract has to do with what we teach on baptism for the remission of sins, which he calls a heresy, and he calls it an ancient pagan belief. He says of the many heresies taught by the Church of Christ, baptismal regeneration is probably the most well known and also the most harmful. This is an ancient 
pagan belief that a person must be baptized in water in order to receive cleansing from sin and the right to enter heaven. Well, that's a good way to uh, sort of uh, skew the opinion of your audience is to call it an ancient pagan belief. That'll immediately yeah. get them to turn against what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about. And that's sort of like me saying, you're ugly and stupid. Now let me tell you what's wrong with what you just said. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Uh, so uh, again, there's this a prejudicial tone it is. That, yeah. that's that's addressed. Okay. Uh, he starts out by saying, he quotes, and, and throughout this uh, essay, he quoted uh, several tracts that are published by members of the Church of Christ. There's one by Delton Hahn called "Must One Be Baptized to Go to Heaven," and and in that tract, and we we think that Delton Hahn has taught the truth. I don't know Delton Hahn, but I think he's taught the truth on this. And in that tract, Delton Hahn said, as we begin this brief study, let us note the question concerns us, not Abraham, not the thief on the cross. These men lived and died in past ages before Christ's death and before the terms of pardon were announced publicly on the day of Pentecost for all who lived in the Christian age. Ooh, that doesn't set well with Mr. Melton. Yeah. So uh, he's going to go on now to address that. He said, uh, Hahn, in this tract that we just quoted, attempts to avoid the issue of the thief on the cross. This is because the thief on the cross was saved without being baptized. I don't disagree with that, and uh, Mr. Hahn does not agree with that. Disagree with that, I mean. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I wouldn't make any argument. You know, I, sometimes I hear people trying to argue that maybe the thief on the cross was baptized because a lot of a lot of the Jews were being baptized by John the Baptist, but I don't see any reason to argue that point no. at all. Now, he, he makes a point. Uh, was this a past age before Christ's death or before the terms of pardon were announced publicly? No, it wasn't. He said the thief died after Jesus died. We agree. For no one ever died in his presence. The thief died in this present age, not in the past age. And the terms of pardon were made clear a long time before Acts 2. The Gospel of John points out over and over again that one is saved by believing on Christ, not by water baptism. In fact, after Jesus had come up from the dead and returned to heaven, John tells us that we can have life through Christ's name by believing on him, not by being baptized in water. Well, part of that, part of the big difference we'll have is a definition of what belief and faith really involves. Uh, if someone were to ask me, are we saved by faith? I would say absolutely yes, we are saved by faith. But then we have to go on to discuss what bibli- biblically saving faith is and uh, and we would go to passages like James chapter 2, verse 24, faith without works is dead. You see then how that by faith, by works of man is justified and not by faith only. Uh, and so, we, yes, we believe that we're saved by faith, but it, is, it must necessarily be a faith that produces action. Yeah. So there's going to be some skewing of arguments there because he says we're saved by faith. We believe that too, but we he believes faith only. We believe faith coupled with obedient works. Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 46, basically, if you don't obey me, you don't believe me. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? So Mr. Melton says you can call him Lord and not do what he says, and you'll be all right. Jesus says that's not true. Good point. Um, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't even care to engage in a discussion of when the thief died before or after Jesus. I think he did die after Jesus, by the way. Uh, I, I wouldn't try to argue whether he lived, was still living under the Old Testament system or the New Testament system at the time of his death because I don't really think that matters. Because what we know is that Jesus was alive personally 
and pardoned him in person. But you know, Jesus did that to a lot of different individuals. Yep, he did it to the paralytic that was dropped down through the roof. And that that account in Mark 2 and Luke 5, mm-hmm. he says, thy sins be forgiven. Right. When Jesus was here and alive on earth, he had, the, he had the authority to forgive sins directly. And that's what he did to the thief on the cross. If Jesus were here, he could do personally today in the flesh. He could do that for us just as he did for the thief on the cross or the paralytic. He's not, and therefore the only way we know to obtain forgiveness of sins is by his revealed will. And that revealed will includes baptism for the remission of sins. We're going to talk more about that, obviously, as we go along. But, again, was the thief on the cross? Did Jesus pardon the thief on the cross? He absolutely did. Yes. Did the thief die after Jesus? Yes. But it doesn't matter what system he was under. That's not our argument whatsoever. It's simply that we're not, our situation is not parallel to the thief's situation. And to use this as an example, what we must do to be saved just simply doesn't work. Chris in Georgia says several issues here. We do not know the thief was bab- if the thief was baptized or not. Jesus had the power to forgive sins, Matthew 8, 9, verse 6. And believing on or in Jesus does not mean we just say we believe and then he will save us. You have to obey him and do what he says in order to be saved. It would be like a football player for the Patriots saying they believe in Coach Belichick, but then never doing the things he says to do in order to be a good football player. If you believe in the coach, you'll do all that he says to do in order to become a skilled player. If I believe in Jesus, I will do what he says to do. I think that's exactly right. Uh, Kent in Georgia says, uh, he, he Kent, I think, rightfully objects to the expression baptismal regeneration. He says that's a Catholic doctrine. That affirms that the waters of baptism themselves, even if, if applied to a baby who can't make an intelligent confession of faith uh, or, or repent, that, it's, that, that the water itself is effectual. And we don't believe that either. And he, he, he That's not a about, scriptural term. That's not a scriptural uh, terminology, to be sure. Uh, or concept. Uh, and Kent goes on to, uh, Kent's written us a lot of good stuff here tonight. We may not get to be able to get to it all. Uh, but he, Kent makes the point uh, that the new covenant did not become operational until after Christ arose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And while it's true that the thief died after the death of Christ, such is not germane to this issue. Christ promised that this thief would be with him in paradise while he was still living. So, again, he's making the same point there that we do. And he makes a good point here. He says, even Mr. Melton does not believe that one is saved on the same conditions as this thief. He was not required to believe that Jesus had already been raised from the dead. Accountable individuals today must believe that Jesus has already been raised from the dead. He references Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That's really good. In other words, the thief couldn't have done what we're expected to do because it hadn't even happened yet. He Notice Romans 10, verse 9, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Oh, that's a really good point. I've never made that point before. Thank you, Kent, for making that. Thank you for that. Uh, So the thief could not not do what we are required to do because he couldn't confess that the resurrection had happened yet because it it hadn't happened yet. He couldn't confess the resurrection of Christ because it hadn't even happened yet. Really good point. All right. Uh, let's go. Now, we got a bunch of, of verses, but, but before we, he's going to run through a bunch of verses that he say we, says we use as proof text. But before he does that, 
He tries to assign us a, a, a belief that we do not hold. He says that we believe that to be baptized means immersed in water everywhere it is found. That is, um, He says all Church of Christ people err greatly here. Church of Christ members are taught that there's only one kind of baptism, water baptism. The Bible teaches otherwise. Uh, there are other baptisms which are not water baptism. And then he mentions uh, that... Uh, Let's see, he mentions a baptism of fire. He mentions, of course, being baptized with water. He mentions baptized of the Holy Ghost. Uh, so we, but you know, we never said that. It's another straw man. You can just envision some uh, folks who believe like Mr. Melton and who are less than honest reading that and say, Oh, those Church of Christ people, they don't even, they, can they, can you imagine they believe the, when they read baptism, every baptism is water. They can't see that. They couldn't see past the nose on their face if they can't see that. Oh, that's such a straw man. Yeah, exactly right. But uh, clearly the Bible teaches there's baptisms that aren't water. Yeah. And, and, and what we're talking about is baptism in water for the remission of sins. We're talking about a specific kind of baptism. I think it's the most frequently mentioned baptism in the New Testament, but it, but we understand that there are other baptisms mentioned. Uh, in the, uh, to be baptized simply means to be enveloped or immersed in something. And so uh, you could be baptized with persecution, meaning you're just covered up with with persecution, and I think that's the idea of a baptism by fire, for right, instance. Right. Uh, so we understand that what the word means, and that, and that it's used that way sometimes in the Bible, not not extremely often, but by far and away the most often uh, we read about baptism is water baptism. He goes on and he makes this argument. He says this one baptism, which is much is far more important than water baptism, and then. Uh, this is the spirit baptism that the new Christian receives when he receives Christ as Savior. First Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For by one spirit are you all baptized into one body. The spirit of God baptizes or immerses the new believer into the spiritual body of Christ. This has nothing to do with water baptism, for there's no water anywhere in First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. You know, I really think he has missed it there. I don't think this is talking about a baptism that the spirit does. Yes. This this is a baptism that takes place because we're instructed of the Spirit to do so. We are all, by one Spirit, are we all baptized into one body. I think that is talking about water baptism for the remission of sins, but the only, re- the only way we would know that is by virtue of the Spirit revealing it. Um, There's a- notice in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8, the Hebrew writer says, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure wherein, uh, therein, which are offered by the law. So sacrifices offered by the law. He's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. They're not effectual anymore, but they were offered by the law. Offered by the law. What does that mean? That means the law taught them what to do, and they did accordingly when they offered their sacrifices baptized by the one spirit means that we're baptized in accordance with the instructions of the spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 and 26 have a similar construction. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water 
by the Word. We're not baptized in the Word. By, by Bible. We're baptized by the instruction of the Word. My Bible doesn't take me and baptize me. No. I'm baptized because I read my Bible and learn that that's what it teaches. Okay. All right. So we're ready to start diving into these various verses that Mr. Melton says we misuse as proof text. But before we grab that, Jacob, let's go to a break, and then when we come back, we'll we'll have to hurry through these many verses. Guest 3283 in the chat room asked a question. Jesus had authority to forgive sins directly, but now he doesn't? Question mark. No, he still does have the authority to forgive sins, and he still is forgiving sins, but he has laid out the conditions for that. If he were on earth today, he could still grant us pardon. Uh, but the, 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 the classic example, Jacob, is here, here I am and you're my son and you, I, I concerning my considerable estate and wealth, what's that? <laughs> I could, I could give that to Kyle tonight and exclude you. But after I'm dead and you dig out a will that I have written and it names you and not Kyle, then the only way you're going to get some of my considerable estate and wealth is if you're named in my will and meet the conditions of my will. While I'm alive, I can give it to anybody I want when I'm dead. And, of course, I'm joking about that considerable wealth and estate, obviously. But while I'm alive, I can give what I have to whoever I will. But when I'm dead, the only way you can get part of that is if you meet the terms of my will. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. Yes, Jesus still uh, provides for the forgiveness of sins. He's not here in the flesh to do it as he did with the thief on the cross, but his will and testament tell us how to uh, uh, be a part of that. Tells us how he will pardon us for our sins. Uh, Thank you for the comment tonight. If you have more, send them in the chat room. We're going to get a break. We'll get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. Hi, I'm Lane Crawford, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you've never visited with the College View Church of Christ, you may be wondering what our worship services are like. One thing we have at every worship service is music. We believe God has commanded that music be a part of our worship. But something you may notice about our worship is that the music we have in our worship is different than the music used by many in the religious world today. The music we worship God with is strictly vocal. We don't believe God has commanded us to worship Him with instrumental music. Therefore, since we want God to approve of the worship we offer Him, we only worship in the way that He has specified. In Colossians 3.16, God instructs, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Instructions like this in which only vocal music is commanded are the only instructions we can find in the New Testament. Since God didn't tell us that he wanted us to worship him with instrumental music, how can we be sure that he wants that kind of worship? We do know that if we worship God like he prescribed with vocal music, that he'll be happy with that kind of worship. We hope you'll make plans to visit with the College of Church of Christ to learn more about what our worship is like. We'd love to have you join us in worship of our Creator this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Here's some quotes worth pondering. People may doubt what you say, but they will always believe what you do. Kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Life affords no greater responsibility, no greater privilege than the raising of the next generation. People who fly into rage always make a bad landing. Man, wish I'd said that. How about logging off of Facebook and getting into God's book? The Virtual Bible Study continues. We're back on the program tonight as we look at this article by James Melton on uh, the Bible versus the Church of Christ. And uh, he says that the Bible teaches against what the Church of Christ teaches, 
in the area of baptism. And he's going to some verses he says that we use erroneously. Yeah, he call, he says that we are proof texting. Uh, and he wants to look at some of these proof texts that we use that we claim prove that baptism is essential for salvation. Uh, I, I, it look, depends a little bit on what you mean by proof texting. Uh, sometimes when we use the expression proof texting, we mean snatching things out of context and perverting them from their original meaning. Certainly. But we do believe in going to Bible verses to prove or establish that what we're saying is true. So does Mr. Melton, and he uses the same approach where he's yeah. quoting verses that support his beliefs. Exactly right. So, yeah, again, no, no mud to sling there because he's doing the same thing. Okay, now, Mark sixteen sixteen is the first one that he approaches. He says, uh, Mark sixteen sixteen says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And he says, the verse plainly says, He that believeth not shall be damned. One is damned for not believing. No one is damned for not being baptized. Uh, it is the sin of unbelief that damns the lost soul to hell. And this is very well confirmed by many portions of Scripture. Uh, you know, this is an argument that, that you get on Mark sixteen sixteen a lot. Who's, who, who's going to be lost in that passage? Well, those who don't believe. Yeah. Well, if I don't believe, then I'm not going to do anything else either, right? So I agree that the sin of unbelief will damn a person to hell. It's not a question. We're not talking about what you have to do to be lost. To be lost, don't believe. But what do you have to do to be saved? That's the question of the hour. What must I do to be saved? Well, in that verse, plainly, he he that believeth and is baptized. Now, I don't have to not, in other words, not being baptized is not even a a consideration for those who are unbelievers. Uh, Unbelief is enough in itself. If you are an unbeliever, you will be lost. You will be damned by Mark 16, 16's statement. But if you want to be saved, then you need to believe and be baptized. The very plain words of Jesus. I don't know how you can make it any plainer than that. All right. So, yeah. So belief is not enough. For instance, what about the demons? The demons acknowledge Christ as the Son of God. They're not saved. They believe that who he, who he was. Well, uh, also in John chapter 12, verse 42 it says, among the chief rulers, many believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you just had to believe, but apparently they were going to be condemned because they wouldn't confess. Yeah. Mr. Melton, I think, would agree with your conclusion. They had to confess, but he says you're wrong to think that they had to be baptized in Mark 16. Yeah, so there's a little bit of problem with the position he's taking now. He goes on, and we do not have time tonight. He, he references a whole bunch of verses that talk about faith. We believe that faith is essential. Again, this goes to a point made right at the start. There's going to be some real uh, confusion here because when he says faith, he means faith only. When we say faith or belief, we're talking about obedient faith. Uh, uh, for instance, Hebrews chapter 5 tells us about that of faith. Hebrews 5 verse 9, Jesus being made perfect became the author of eternal salvation to all the, they that believe him. Yeah. Jesus saves the people who obey him. Yeah. And that's as plain as you can be there in Hebrews chapter oh, 5 you, you, verse read 9. Read that again. You said believe him. Read that last part. No, again. Sorry. And, he became, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Obey him. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, those who uh-huh. obey him. Um, uh, again, I wish we had time, but we don't have time to go through all the verses because we'd make the same point about everyone. When it talks about faith that saves or belief that saves, it's always talking about 
obedient faith, not just faith only. But notice the very first one he references, John 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So if you believe, you have the power to become, but it doesn't say it's automatic. It's going to have, you're going to have to follow up on that faith, and you're going to have to be obedient. Uh, your faith is going to have to be linked with obedience. Hebrews 5, verse 9. Uh, Kent in uh, Calhoun, Georgia says, While baptism alone does not save in conjunction with faith, uh, not, does not save, such in conjunction with faith saves. Mr. Melton may as well deny that faith saves as to deny that baptism saves, Due to the fact that Christ joined them in the same verse, both either stand or fall together. I think that's right. Okay. Uh, Chris in Georgia says, uh, he claims we take the verse out of context, but wow, he really is guilty of this. It would be redundant for the verse to read that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe and is not baptized will be lost. If you don't believe, then logic dictates there's no need to be baptized. It would be the same thing as saying if you come to the interview and fill out a background authorization check, then you will get the job. If you don't come to the interview, then you will not get the job. The background check would be irrelevant if they didn't come to the interview. Yep. <coughs> I think that's exactly right. All right. And uh, <coughs> Mohan says, I would respond that one who has not believed is not a candidate for baptism, so there's no need for Jesus to say he who does not believe and is baptized <coughs> is condemned. Also, by simple grammar, we see baptism is before salvation in this verse, not after. Thank you, Mohan, for that. Uh, very good, Mohan. Thanks. Uh, another verse where he just talked about faith is the Acts 16, 30 and 31. The, the Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And that is exactly what they told him. But it's, go on to read what was involved in that. They went and they taught and they baptized him in the same hour of the night. Why would they take... He took them out of the prison, risked his life to be baptized in the same hour of the night. If baptism wasn't necessary, you know, really, I, that story is is proof of our position, not Mr. Melton's, because it shows that his faith, believing in Jesus, had to lead him to be obedient, including baptism, and he did so immediately, even when he put his life at risk in order to do Believing it. Believing in Christ means you will obey Christ, and obeying Christ is required in order for him to save you. He's the author of eternal salvation to all them who obey him. And so if we want to be pleasing to God, we must believe and obey the demons' fear and tremble, the demons uh, believed that Jesus was the Son of God. The Pharisees believed who he was, but they were afraid to confess him. Just believing is not going to make you pleasing to God. You must believe and obey. Uh, and then finally, and we've got to move on, but <clears throat> Melton says, Mark 16, 16, in Mark 16, 16, the water baptism follows the individual's belief as a good testimony, just as taking a seat follows stepping on a school bus. The key element in one's salvation is his belief in Christ alone. Water baptism is important, and it, sh- and, and it should always follow salvation as a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it cannot save anyone. That's not what Mark 16 says. It says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism is before salvation, not after. If that, that word and, you can't get around it. You have to have both if you want to be saved. And, and we don't have time to dive off into all this, but he says it's a picture. Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if, if baptism follows salvation, then you're already alive. Then you bury an alive person. 
I think a lot of our listeners probably know what I'm talking about there, but the, the whole symbolism is off. Yes. If baptism follows salvation, because you're already born again, made alive. Now we're going to bury you? No, you're dead in sin. You're buried in the waters of baptism. You rise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Look at Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, and line it up with what Mr. Melton and folks who believe like him are teaching you, that baptism is for those who are already saved, already alive in Christ, and the imagery simply does not work. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's grab a break, and then we're going to talk about a very important passage, Acts 2.38. Peter got it wrong in Acts 2.38, according to Mr. Melton. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. Got a question about something? You've studied. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be right back after this. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. Our bullet point this week comes from the pen of Jerry Frost. Most of our unhappiness is produced by the gross sin of ingratitude. Self-pity is what it is often called. Anything we do not like, anything that is against our wishes, makes us miserable if we are consumed by selfishness. It is quite striking that many of those who were so miserable as to commit suicide were blessed with looks, talents, wealth, and even fame. They quit on themselves and on life, not because no one needed them, but because they magnified their miseries and ignored their blessings. The antidote to this kind of misery is to reverse the process. Forget yourself. Jesus said to deny yourself, Matthew 16, verse 24. Help someone who needs help. Magnify your blessings and remember all your problems. All of them are temporary. We are made for eternity. What a blessing. Thank God for the great hope we have in Jesus and for the blessings of the common day. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Steve Novorak, reminding you to listen to the Virtual Bible Study every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The Virtual Bible Study rolls along. Hey, we're back on the program. Lots to talk about tonight. We're going to keep it short on letting you know this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. We want to hear from you. Questions at collegeview.com if you disagree with anything that we've heard or you have a suggestion for a future edition of, the, on the, of a topic on the program or just a question you'd like to hear in one of our smorgasbord programs where we answer listener questions questions at collegeview.com we're talking about the tract the ba- the bible versus the church of christ by james melton a baptist preacher he says that we're wrong on the subject of baptism and he's attempting to show that in the article that we're looking at tonight so we go to acts 238 and i think of course the members of the church of christ are pretty famous for using acts 238 because it it definitely teaches exactly what we're talking about uh, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Be baptized, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. He says, We will show you why Acts 2.38 does not teach that a person has to be baptized to be saved. And he's got like four or five points here, Jacob, that we need to go through pretty quickly, but they're all they all are are issues that that we have with people who will not accept what Acts 2.38 plainly says. Yep. Now, here's where, Jacob, you were saying he, he, he basically got Peter missing it. Okay. Go ahead. He said, first of all, the same Peter who is preaching in Acts 2.38 later learns a few things about salvation he did not know in Acts chapter 2. We know this is true because in Acts 15:11 Peter says something very different. Through the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. In other words, through grace we're going to be saved. In Acts 15:11 Peter says nothing about baptism. Why not? If it's so important, why did he mention it? 
Very simple. At the time of Acts 2.38, Peter didn't fully understand salvation by the by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8.9. God had to reveal this to Peter, and by the time we reach Acts 15.11, Peter gives us God's salvation plan for today. Now, just one comment here about this. He, he, he's saying Peter was wrong on Acts 2.38. When he makes that argument, he grants the point, doesn't he? He basically is admitting that Peter is teaching we must be baptized in order to be Good saved. Right? I mean, if, if you're saying he got it wrong... Well, then you're admitting that he's he's teaching what we're saying he's teaching. Yeah. So uh, so he's, he's yielded that point. That's, he's yielded. I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that, yeah. but you're exactly right. He's yielded that point right when he says that. Um, uh, of course, the question becomes, well, how do we know when Peter got it right? How, you know, uh, how do we know as we go along reading through Acts? Should we just cut out sections of Acts because they, they were not they're not correct? What about Acts 2.38? You want to just tear it from the Scripture? Because it, it, it was spoken by Peter when Peter didn't even know better. I mean, if, the, if, if we're going to do that, we're in, we're in a world of hurt because we won't know what these inspired men. When were they right and when were they not right and how would we know the difference? It just throws the whole Bible into question. All right. Uh, the fact of the matter is we've got to harmonize all that the Bible teaches. And we agree through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, Acts 15, verse 11. Uh, it, is a, it is by grace we're saved, not by works of merit that we have. None of us think that we're earning of our salvation. Right. We're saved by grace, through faith. We, but it has to be an obedient faith. And it is the gift of God. We're not earning it. We have to meet conditions, but it doesn't earn our salvation. You know, we can harmonize the scriptures. We can harmonize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and we don't do it by saying Paul got it wrong in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Paul didn't understand what he was talking about to make Acts 2, 38 teach that we've got to be baptized. Yeah. But we can harmonize those. Mr. Melton cannot, and so he has to resort to arguments like, well, Peter just didn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, uh, that's really a dangerous, dangerous thing that he said there. But we, we, we'll have to move on from that. But please please observe the kind of argumentation this man is making that he has to make to destroy any semblance of sense based upon the plain statement of Acts 2, verse 38. Okay. Now, he goes on to say, secondly, there were no Gentiles uh, in Acts 2, 38. Every individual present... Uh, is a commandment-keeping, Sabbath-observing, temple-worshiping Jew. And they were pricked in their heart, verse 37, and asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice they did not ask, What must we do to be saved? Uh, the answer to that question is in Acts 16.31, not in Acts 2.38. The Jews wanted to know what to do in the light of the fact that they had crucified their Messiah. This is a national situation concerning Israel not an individual situation dealing with lost sinners. No one in the chapter asked how to be saved. I'm going to tell you, that's, I mean... Slaughtering the passage. Yeah, because what did he tell, what what did Peter say? When they said, what must we do? Peter said, well, as a nation, you need to get your leaders to... to, Go be baptized. ...to uh, produce an edict or... No, what he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, not... He didn't deal with the nation. He was dealing with each individual. And he's hinting at some dispensationalism here that yeah. Peter would be preaching a different gospel to the Jews and was preached to the Gentiles. Exactly right. But that is in contrast to what Peter went on to say in verse 39. Or again, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive <laughs> the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you 
and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It wasn't just for the Jews on the day of Pentecost. It is for all of mankind. They were to follow the instructions that Peter had given there in exactly Acts 2.38. Right. He makes a third argument. He says, notice another thing about Acts 2.38 is that the term for does not always mean in order to, like the Church of Christ teaches. Now, he's talking about for the remission of sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. The, the Greek word there is the word in English we would italis, or uh, ang- anglicize it, E-I-S, we would pronounce it ice. Mm-hmm. It's the Greek word ice, and it is in order to, unto, and translated for. He says, uh, he says but th- that word for doesn't always mean in order to. He says a good example of this is found in Luke 5.14. It's a misprint there, but it should be Luke 5.14 where the Lord tells the cleansed leper to go and offer a sacrifice, quote, for thy cleansing. The man wasn't offering a sacrifice in order to be cleansed because he had already been cleansed. He was offering a sacrifice because of the cleansing that he already had. Therefore, the word for sometimes means because of. You know what the problem with that whole argument is? <laughs> it ain't so. It's a different Greek word. Yeah. It, it, in, the, in the verse that he quoted there, Luke 5.14, again, there's a misprint there, but like uh, in Luke 5.14, the Greek word is peri, uh, because of, is not ice, unto, and so he just, he, he builds a whole argument there on something that's, ab- he, he hasn't done his research there at all. Mr. Melton would be better off to go to Matthew 26, verse 18, where Jesus talks about uh, his blood, which is it's shed, 28, 26.28, yeah. For his blood, which is shed for many for, same Greek word, same construction. Jesus shed his blood not because of the remission of sins, but in order to accomplish it. All right, and then then another argument. He says the Jews were told to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but we are told to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost in Matthew 28, verse 19. Acts 2.38 is obviously a special baptism for the first century Jews who had rejected Christ. There's that dispensationalism that you were talking mm-hmm. about a minute ago. A different gospel was preached to the Jews than was preached to the Gentiles. And it's just simply not true. There's no difference in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They are one. They are in complete and perfect unity and harmony. Uh, and so to do it in the name of one is the, to do it in the name of all because they are perfectly harmonious Okay, uh, and then he makes an argument. I, I don't know if we have time to even deal with it. We probably don't. But he says, uh, the take note of the fact that the Jews of Acts chapter two received the Holy Ghost after they were baptized. However, the believing Gentiles in Acts ten forty four received the Holy Ghost before they were baptized, and Peter was preaching there too, just as he was in Acts two thirty eight. Mm. Uh, why didn't Peter tell the Gentiles Acts ten forty four the same thing he told the Jews in Acts two thirty eight? God didn't give him a chance, he says, and he went ahead and sent the Spirit before anything was said about baptism. But, you know, the Spirit coming upon Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10 didn't save them. They were commanded to be baptized in water, the text goes on to say. The, the, the different the coming, manifestation, different giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was was given to prove that Gentiles could be fit subjects of baptism for the remission of sins. Fit subjects of the whole gospel of Christ is what we mean. If uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon you indicates your salvation, what does that say about Balaam's donkey? Okay, there you go. 
Uh, And then he concludes this by saying the book of Acts is a book of progressive revelation. God reveals more and more about salvation by grace through faith as the book progresses. We deny it. I don't know how I don't know how he could come to that. And and when he does, however, he comes to that. He's putting himself at great jeopardy because we don't we won't know what to take and what to leave off. All right. Um, Uh, Let's get to uh, Chris in uh, Georgia. He says, I don't know whether to laugh or cry, shake my head or do all three regarding his treatment of this verse. Too many issues to cover. So he's going to leave that to us. He said, I will say that we do not refer to other translations. Okay, he. He took a jab at us for looking at other translations on how they translated Acts 2, verse 38. Uh, but he says uh, he's read it in a lot of other versions, and they translate this verse the same. His statement regarding Peter not fully understanding salvation by grace is laughable. His other statements that Acts is a book of progressive revelation is ridiculous. This statement completely goes against every nature of who God is. Man. So there's some of God's word that you can trust, and there's some of God's word that you can't, according to Mr. Melton. And I guess you need Mr. Melton to tell you which ones you can trust and which ones you can't. And Kent has given us a long uh, uh, answer to this question. We may not get it all here, but he says, uh, Mr. Melton makes a ridiculous claim that Peter did not know what he was talking about regarding salvation from sin. Such a false position impugns the apostolic authority bestowed upon Peter by means of the Holy Spirit baptism. As a matter of fact, Melton's false claim is a denial of plenary verbal inspiration regarding this verse of Scripture. He goes on to imply that Peter taught false doctrine and that the Holy Spirit confirmed false doctrine by the miraculous signs that that occurred on Pentecost. That's a good point. If it wasn't right, why was the Spirit confirming it with the miracles they were performing? Any doctrine that implies a false doctrine is within itself false. Uh, Melton's doctrine regarding the inspiration of the Holy Spirit implies a false doctrine. Therefore, Melton's doctrine regarding Acts 2.38 is false. And Kent, Kent also says, in total desperation, Mr. Melton unsuccessfully seeks to lessen the force of Acts 2.38 but by denying that the proposition for, or ice, means in order to. He has no problem in applying the preposition for as meaning in order to regarding the command of repentance, that in some, in spite of the force of the conjunction and as it relates to baptism, he denies such. He cannot grammatically have it both ways, he says. So what, what Kent's saying there is repent. Peter told them repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Melton agrees that people have to repent for the remission of sins. But if you're going to, if you're going to say you have to repent for remission of sins, then you have to, you have to accept that repent and be baptized are joined by the conjunction and. So if repentance is necessary in order to have the remission of sins, then so also is baptism in order to have the remission of sins. And if repentance is necessary, then it's not simply believing, is it? That's exactly right. All right. All right, let's grab our last break, and when we come back, we're going to fly to the top of the hour. We've got several more verses. We're just going to have to talk about them very briefly uh, as we finish up. We're going to the top of the hour. We're going fast right after this. There's more of the virtual Bible study to come after these important messages. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks it. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the Virtual Bible Study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. 
please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. We're talking the trends on the Virtual Bible Study. Among U.S. adults who identify as Christian, 3 in 10 have a high level of congregational involvement, while 58% have a medium level and 12% fall into the low category. For some groups, however, much bigger shares of members are highly involved. Among Mormons, 67% have a high level of engagement, while a comparable share of Jehovah's Witnesses, 64%, are highly involved. Mainline Protestants and Catholics are least involved in their congregations. Just 20% of mainline Protestants are highly involved, and among Catholics, only 16% are highly involved. That information is via Pew Research Center. The Word of God says in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. And we're at the top of the hour talking about Mr. Melton's uh, article, The Bible Versus the Church of Christ, talking about his arguments against baptism, and he says we're teaching falsely on that. We're looking at his arguments. Okay, so let's go to another verse again that he says we misuse. We think he's completely wrong, but he wants to, he wants to talk about Acts 2.38. Uh, this is where Ananias tells Paul, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, Melton goes on. Revelation 1.5 plainly tells us that it is the blood of Jesus that washes away sin, not water baptism. So there's obviously more to Acts 22.16 than the Church of Christ teaches. Why did Ananias say this to Paul? Well, according to Acts 22.12, he was a Jewish proselyte who still followed the Old Testament law. He still followed the law because he, like Peter, did not yet have full understanding of salvation by grace. <laughs> there we go Obviously, again. he didn't or he wouldn't have been following the law. Being a devout man, according to the law, Ananias associated water baptism with the Old Testament laws of purification, which were for washing the flesh, not the soul. He didn't have a clear understanding of the blood of atonement of Christ, which washes away all sin. Well, uh... Again, I mean, this is this is really challenging us to know what part of the Scripture we can accept and what not. The Holy Spirit saw fit to, by inspiration, record the words that Ananias spoke to Saul of Tarsus. Why? If they weren't right. And by the way, Jesus. This, is, this is way later in Acts because that, that account of it is Paul retelling his salvation retelling his conversion years later. And so why didn't Paul leave that out? If Paul surely by this point, this this is in the later chapters of Acts. He would have known, well, Ananias got it wrong. I don't want to confuse the issue. Would, I'm going to leave would, that detail out. I would out. never repeat that. Ananias I feel sorry. Was he was so ignorant. Off, yeah. But you know what? Not only does it call into question what Ananias said, now he's also calling into question what the Apostle Paul said. But we also have to call, it calls into question what Jesus himself said, because he told uh, Paul, he says, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. That's in Acts 9, where it happened. Where so I can't trust Peter, I can't trust Ananias, I can't trust Paul, and no longer can I trust Christ if I'm going to believe what Mr. Melton said. Because Jesus said, you'll be told what you must do. Ananias is the one who told him. Yeah. So Jesus had it wrong, too, apparently. You see, Mr. Melton simply cannot harmonize the scriptures with his position. Chris in Atlanta says his logic here is ridiculous. How does he know Ananias did not understand, understand salvation? Why would God have sent him to Paul if he didn't? If believing on Jesus was the only requirement, then Paul most certainly did this after meeting him on the road. You know, he met him on the road. He was struck blind. He went into the city, fasted, and prayed for three days 
You're not a very happy saved person if, if he was saved on the road by faith only. And uh, Kent says, Mr. Milton works overtime to demonstrate his confusion regarding Acts 22.16. First, he cannot prove that Mr. that uh, Ananias was a proselyte uh, to Old Testament Judaism. Second, he does not understand that he was a New Testament Christian by the same, same means that Gentiles were converted by the preaching of Paul. Galatians 1, 22, or 21 through 24... Third, he misrepresents us in falsely stating that we argue that water washes away the sin. The blood of Christ washes away sin. However, such does not happen until one is baptized. The blood that Christ, of Christ is what is the what of forgiveness, and the baptism is the win of forgiveness. Mr. Milton, by implication, accuses Ananias of being a false teacher regarding the gospel plan of salvation, and also, by implication, places the Lord in a situation for sending a false teacher to Paul to present false doctrine to him regarding salvation. He has God as being the author of confusion here with this doctrine that he's proclaiming yeah. tonight. Yeah, we're in big trouble if what he's saying is true. We, we won't know and, and just don't have any way to discern what is for us and what is not. Uh, hang on just a minute. My computer's about to die. So it certainly is. Uh, he's exposing what a precarious position this doctrine of faith-only salvation puts us in. Um, Kyle, you've been silent tonight. Uh, any comments? Well, I know uh, the translation, which just says, uh, Mayan says that uh, calls Ananias a disciple, which it's, it's from the way he talk, talks to Paul, the way he just the way he tells him what he must do. He just, just speaks volumes. He was a disciple of Christ. It's, he was a he was a Christian in my eyes, but I'm not. Of course, it doesn't come out necessarily uh, say that specifically. But it's just what he's saying, what he's talking about. It just. But and again, I, cannot see that I agree not. with you, and I just don't, I can't understand why those words would be recorded if they were erroneous words. Why would the Holy Spirit see fit to record those words for us? Okay, let's go on. All right. The next the next verse we've got to deal with is First Peter three twenty one. First Peter three twenty one is a real problem verse for those who do not believe that baptism is essential for salvation. It says in First Peter chapter three verse twenty one. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away the filth of flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had just been talking in the previous verse about Noah uh, being saved from the flood. Uh, he says, Noah, while the ark was preparing, Noah, wherein few, the ark was prepared, and wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. And he says, uh, anyone can clearly see, the verse says that it's a figure, not a doctrine. Water baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's right, and it says that that picture saves us. Uh, uh, this, is, this is a passage that's talking about uh, types and anatypes. Uh, uh, other versions, I think, make this really clear. Uh, one version says uh, this water uh, symbolizes bab- this water of the flood symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So uh, uh, the New King James Version says there is also an antitype. Let me get let me get this verse up here. I'm just I just lost it. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism. So Noah being saved. By the ark, saved from the flood, by the ark that he prepared, is a type. The type is the shadow or the symbol. Baptism is the antitype. Baptism is the real deal. Yep. It's type and antitype. 
the antitype is what was foreshadowed by some previous type. And and what Peter is saying, Noah was saved from the flood by preparing the ark. That was just a shadowy type, but it showed obedient faith. But it was a shadowy type of what now is the antitype or the real thing, and that is baptism, which saves us. That's along the lines of what uh, Chris says. He does not understand the principle of type and antitype. I don't know how much plainer God could have made it when he said, Baptism doth now save you. And then Kent in Calhoun, Georgia says, First Peter 3.21 does not teach that baptism is a figure. The flood was the type or figure. Baptism is the antitype, the reality or real thing as it relates to deliverance from sin. The New King James clarifies this point. That's what I was just reading was New King James. Okay. Exactly right. All right. All right. So we're running low on time. We've got a few more here to hit. He says Romans 6, 3, and 4, Galatians 3, 27 are frequently used by the Church of Christ to teach that water baptism is essential for salvation. But there is no water baptism in either of these verses. These portions of Scripture are speaking of spiritual baptism. Um, well, what do you, uh, how is that in Acts, or excuse me, he mentions Romans 6, 3, 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Um, there, obviously, it doesn't mention water there, but where, how are we? In other words, we make a voluntary act. We, do, we engage in a voluntary act and, and to be buried with him by baptism. Uh, because we know that this is something that we choose to do. Because when you get to verse 17 of the same chapter, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. In other words, they chose to be obedient. This baptism was a choice of theirs to be obedient. That's right. How would that fit Holy Spirit baptism? In other words, I'm obedient in Holy Spirit baptism. No, the Holy, I'm obedient in water baptism. I think that's what Romans 6 is talking about. And uh, Kent is along the same lines. He says, uh, Holy Spirit baptism is not a condition for salvation in, in Christ, entry into the body or New Testament church. Holy Spirit baptism was limited to the apostles of Christ and the house of Cornelius. The context demands water baptism for the remission of sins in all three passages. Only Christ administered Holy Spirit baptism. Water baptism is administered by man by means of the teaching of the Holy Spirit. By affirming the necessity of Holy Spirit baptism, Mr. Milton has just contradicted and countermanded his doctrine of salvation by faith only. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we, we, we missed a couple of comments from our friend Mohan in Chicago sure about First uh, Peter 3.21. He agrees Noah was the type and the antitype is baptism. Thank you, Mohan. Uh, Chris in Atlanta says about Romans 6, uh, he says, how, how could anything other than water baptism be meant since we see example after example of people being baptized and, uh, and the command given to be baptized? All right, agree. Okay. All right. And then finally, he goes to... 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, uh, Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The gospel is defined as the good news that Christ died, was buried, and rose on the third day. The subject of water baptism isn't mentioned once. 
Baptism is important. All true believers should submit to water baptism, but trusting water baptism for salvation is a terrible and unscriptural mistake. Now, this, you know, he, he says that we take verses out of context. I'll tell you, he badly takes 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 17 out of context. Um, he's talking about the sectarian spirit that existed in Corinth. Yep. In the very context, he says, some say, I'm of Paul, others, I am of, of Apollos, others, I have Cephas. He says, in regards to that, Paul condemned them for that. In other words, it's not about that. We're not supposed to be following after individuals. And he says, for that reason, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What Paul is saying was, who baptizes you is of absolutely no consequence. And I'm glad that I didn't personally do any baptizing there. Well, wait a minute. I actually did do some baptizing. I baptized Crispus and Gaius in the household of Stephanus. But Christ sent me not to baptize. Well, if he sent you not to baptize, Paul, why were you baptizing? You baptized some people. Were you violating your commission? No, he's just saying in the context, I'm glad to baptize any more than I did, lest there would be people who said that I baptized in my own name. And this is throwing the baby out with the bathwater because even Mr. Melton thinks that baptism is important. You need to be baptized to be to, after you're saved, according to Mr. Melton. So if, if Christ is not sending Paul to baptize, and that means that you shouldn't be baptized, then Mr. Melton's interpretation of baptism is erroneous. Um, Kent says 1 Corinthians one seventeen is not discussing the design of baptism. Paul is discussing the administration of such. The passage proves that baptism is not administered by a proper administrator. One can and may be scripturally baptized by anyone who will agree to baptize according to the New Testament pattern. Melton wiggles himself into an additional into additional problems regarding this passage. If it is the case, as Mr. Melton affirms, that baptism is not part of the gospel, the baptiz- the baptism is not a New Testament doc- ordinance. However, it takes baptism to make a Baptist. Therefore, Paul was not sent to make Baptist, and Baptist churches are not New Testament churches. That's interesting. All right. uh, good, good point. Appreciate all your work on that. On and, uh, and Chris says, um, I used to be a Baptist and will never forget asking the preacher about the Church of Christ. He said, oh, those Church of Christ people take one or two verses and twist them in order to believe what they want. Looking back, it is actually the Baptist and others who go to great and exhaustive lengths to twist the Scripture from saying what it actually says. I think you're right, Chris. And I think that this this exercise, these last couple of weeks, have really demonstrated that, that, that you have to really do some real gym, uh, 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 well, gymnastics, intellectual gymnastics, which uh, to, to get around the plain statements of Scripture. All right. Uh, it's been a good discussion. Uh, and... Uh, we need to reiterate what we said earlier. Um, if someone disagrees with what we said, we'd like uh, to hear from you. You can do it in an email, or better yet, you could come on and, and we'll give you the floor and let you present your your position, your view. Uh, give us a call. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from I, you. I just think if you're going to take a position, and especially if you're going to try to represent what someone else believes, you ought to be willing to engage in a discussion with those same people. And and uh, we, unfortunately, weren't able to get Mr. Melton to agree to do that. Uh, maybe he's just too busy. But the fact of the matter is, what he said does not truly represent our position, and he perverts the Scripture in the process of trying to disprove what we believe. Uh, Kyle, any final thoughts from you? I think it's just... Uh 
there's a, I guess there's a reason we call it uh, simple New Testament Christianity. That's a, it's, that's the phrase for a reason. We just want to do what basically what God tells us, and it's, it's a, not that hard to understand. It's a lot really harder to deny what He said, isn't it? You have to really work hard to try and get around some of those very plain statements of Scripture. All right. Hebrews 5, verse 9, again, Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Have you obeyed what he said in Mark 16, verse 16? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We can harmonize the scriptures by concluding that we must be obedient, we must be baptized in order to be saved. To deny such requires you... Uh, to make a lot of contradictory uh, conclusions. But we would actually say, you know, uh, I think what some people try to pin us with is that we believe baptism is the be-all and end-all, and it's not. Baptism is one condition set forth in the Scripture. There are others, but baptism is clearly one of the conditions that we must meet in order to be saved. Including repentance and confession. Faith, faith, repentance, confession. You're not earning your salvation when you repent, when you confess, or when you're baptized. But you must be obedient in order to be safe. Thank you, right. Dad, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for being here. Hope you benefited from your, our study and discussion of God's Word. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ, the College View Church, 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the Internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.